They served in every theater of World War II. They took horrendous losses, and we could not have won the war without them. I'm Oliver North, and in this War Stories podcast, you're going to hear the stories of some very brave men who weren't even considered to be veterans until Ronald Reagan became president. It's the U.S. Merchant Marine. Without them and the bridge of merchant ships delivering weapons, troops, food, ammo, and fuel from the home front to the battlefield, there would have been no Allied victory. While transiting the oceans, vessels of the United States Merchant Marine had to contend with German U-boats, dive bombers, surface raiders, auxiliaries, and mines. When World War II ended in 1945, nearly 80,000 Allied mariners and 5,000 ships lay at the bottom of the seas. In this podcast, you'll hear firsthand accounts from mariners who were torpedoed, shot at, and captured. You'll meet a member of Hitler's Unterseebootwaffe who went to war in a U-boat. And you'll learn why President Ronald Reagan granted our World War II merchant mariners veteran status. This is the story of the United States Merchant Marine. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate through the site within one day. No juggling email or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. That's ZipRecruiter.com strive. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com Last Drive. Good evening, I'm Oliver North, and this is War Stories. Welcome aboard the SS Jeremiah O'Brien, now the National Liberty Ship Memorial here in San Francisco Harbor. The O'Brien is the only unaltered operational survivor of the Normandy invasion and one of nearly 3,000 Liberty ships built during World War II to feed, fuel, and supply our troops and allies overseas. They were up against a formidable enemy, and tonight you'll meet one of those who sought to send this ship and others like her to the bottom, a veteran of Hitler's Kriegsmarine. This is a story of unsung heroes who served in every theater. From the invasion of North Africa to the landings on D-Day, they crossed every ocean. And as you'll see tonight, they paid a price in blood to be called veterans. Over 700 merchant ships were sunk, and one of every 26 merchant mariners was killed. That's a higher casualty ratio than any of our armed services. This is the story of the United States Merchant Marine. 1939, America was still recovering from the Great Depression and money was hard to come by. A loaf of bread was eight cents, a gallon of milk cost 51 cents, and the average income was $1,266. People were desperate for work. They came from small towns and port cities. They were old men and young boys. Some had been sailing their whole lives, and others had been rejected by their draft boards. I had gone down to uh, try and sign up for the Air Corps. 
and I was rejected because my eyes were bad. I had poor eyesight. I wanted to get in the Marines, and they turned me down because I got hurt pretty bad playing football. It gave me a place that I could eat and have clothes and a warm place to sleep. Otherwise, I was on my own. The Mariners all had one thing in common. They were hungry for adventure and motivated by a strong sense of patriotism and duty. But any hopes of smooth sailing would soon be turned by a storm brewing an ocean away. September 1st, 1939, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis launched a blitzkrieg on Poland. Immediately, England and France declared war on the Axis powers. World War II had begun. By June 1940, the Nazi war machine had added Norway, Denmark, Holland, and France to his fast-growing empire. Fortress England now stood alone against Germany. There's the Nazi air armada. Sights like these are seen over Britain every day. The task of choking England would fall to this 49-year-old Berliner. Admiral Karl Dönitz. He was the commander of the Unterseeboot fleet and one of Hitler's right-hand men. Admiral Dönitz, of course, was a submarine skipper during World War I. So the submarines were in his blood. 19-year-old Pete Peterson was a diesel machinist aboard U-boat 518. He grew up in Husum, Germany, near the Danish border. He understood that the supply to Great Britain of either equipment, food, or soldiers for that matter, was essential. And if we could disrupt that supply and keep it from going to its destination, that would be a great war effort. And he was absolutely right. From June to October 1940, German U-boats sank 137 ships and one and a half million tons of British shipping. This was a a Glückeszeit, a happy time for the the U-boats. Michael Higgins is the author of Action in the South Atlantic and a former merchant mariner also referred to as Fat Yard, the, the Fat Years, when many, many merchant ships were being sunk by the Luftwaffe. On land, the enemy was just as formidable. The Luftwaffe staged an all-out assault on England from the air. The Battle of Britain raged for four months, delivering yet another blow to Churchill. In a desperate move, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill turned to a man he'd met only once, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. FDR was reluctant to get involved in another European war. We declared neutrality, which we cannot help either side. So FDR did arrange for aid to be given to Great Britain, but it was very much under the table, and uh, it was within the constraints of the Neutrality Act of, of 1937. The act forbade American ships from carrying passengers or freight to countries at war, but FDR discreetly found a way to maneuver around it, and introduced a revolutionary new concept, Lend-Lease. These are warships that figure in the historic trade that the United States has made with Great Britain. The ships will aid Britain against Nazi Germany. The Lend-Lease Act was a masterstroke on the part of uh, FDR. Without United States support, uh, England would have fallen. It's just a a slam-dunk no-brainer. As a result of the American Civil War, uh, Americans... The Merchant Marine had been effectively destroyed or eliminated. As a solution, Congress passed the Merchant Marine Act of 1936 to develop and modernize the ailing American Merchant Marine. It would promote U.S. commerce and in times of war would serve as a naval auxiliary. But at the onset of war, the Merchant Marine still wasn't ready to become the lifeline Britain desperately needed. Shipyards were the answer. 
From Maine to Texas and along the West Coast, 18 shipyards sprang up to build what would be called Liberty Ships after Patrick Henry's famous speech, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death. Valued at only a million and a half dollars each, Liberty Ships were 440 feet long and could carry nearly 10,000 tons of cargo at 11 knots. Bernard Flato was a 19-year-old native New Yorker when he first set eyes on a Liberty Ship the SS Thomas Donaldson. There are thousands of these ships put together in very short order. 2,708. The fastest Liberty was built, I think, in four days. Beautiful sleek lines. No, it wasn't sleek. It was, they called it the ugly duckling. It was more uh, like a bathtub, but it was big and it was comfortable for those who sailed on it. The only thing with the Liberties were that they rolled and they pitched, depending on the sea. And sometimes you would come down with a whump and you just hope that whoever was welding didn't do it on a Monday morning, that they did it some other day during the week. On September 27, 1941, the first Liberty ship, the Patrick Henry, was launched from a shipyard in Baltimore. FDR declared it Liberty Day. This is a memorable day in the history of American shipbuilding. Today, from dawn to dark, 14 ships are being launched on the Atlantic, on the Pacific, and on the Gulf. Our shipbuilding program is one of our answers to the aggressors who would strike at our liberty. Less than three months after the first ship sailed to help England, Pearl Harbor was attacked by Japan. Congress declared war the next day, and Germany declared war on the United States four days later. It would take 7 to 15 tons of supplies to support just one soldier for a year. It was now the responsibility of over 250,000 merchant mariners to man the Liberty ships and the rest of the U.S. merchant fleet. Some call it the Pearl Harbor of the Atlantic. Find out how German U-boats managed to sit right off America's coast and sink over 80 merchant ships. That's next on War Stories. December 1941. With America now officially at war, sailors were needed to man the growing U.S. merchant fleet. Nearly 250,000 seamen answered the call. Where do you go to radio officer school? I had to uh, go to Sheepshead Bay for five weeks. We had to learn radio code, and then from there, we went up to Gallup's Island in uh, Boston Harbor. The son of Polish immigrants, 23-year-old Frank Trubisch, joined the Merchant Marine three months before Pearl Harbor. One thing we learned in maritime school was rowing. Man, we rode and rode halfway around the world, I think. Stanley Wilner volunteered for the Merchant Marine right after high school. I got appointed by a senator as a cadet with the Maritime Commission in 1938. I got my mate's license, and then I was automatically in the Naval Reserve as an ensign. I flunked the physical examination. I have malocclusion. Uh, this shoulder's lower than that shoulder. 17-year-old George Duffy wanted to get out of his hometown of Newburyport, Massachusetts. He tried to get into the Naval Academy, but ended up in the Merchant Marine instead. We spent mornings in classroom, though, on mathematics and navigation and rules of the road and things. And in the afternoon, we worked in the sail loft, splicing, sewing, doing seamanship. We're getting ready for our training crews in the spring. A hodgepodge of volunteers. Fresh-faced boys and old-timers of all races converged on union halls for their next assignments. All the jobs would be posted, and you'd go look at the bulletin board. 19-year-old Ken Pride left the oil fields of Oklahoma to become an able seaman aboard the SS Bernuth. It was everything to be a seaman. 
While Europe raged at war, merchant ships transported vital supplies. And lurking right off our east coast were German U-boats under the legendary Admiral Dönitz. The Germans were looking for a way to strike back against America. Keith Gill is the curator of U-Boat 505 at Chicago's Museum of Science and Industry. Donuts wanted to be prepared with a plan of action, and what he came up with was a plan called Operation Paukenschlag, or Operation Drumbeat. Admiral Karl Dönitz launched Operation Drumbeat on December 23, 1941, as five Type 9 U-boats left Lorient, France, for a 3,500-mile trip across the Atlantic. Their target? Ships along America's east coast. It was to be a swift, coordinated strike that would bloody America's nose on its front door. As soon as the U-boats left France, British intelligence sent Admiral Ernest J. King, the chief of naval operations, a coded cable alerting him that U-boats were heading to America. Admiral King chose to ignore the warning. He um, was an Anglophobe for the most part. Uh, there was a lot America could have learned from the early days of World War II. The 64-year-old admiral from Lorain, Ohio, was once described by a junior officer as being, quote, meaner than hell. He was certainly a man who inspired respect, if not love. Even then, Brigadier General Dwight Eisenhower would write in his diary, quote, one thing that might help us win this war is to get someone to shoot King, end quote. Our mission was simply sink ships. Sailors like Peterson were part of Dernitz's elite submarine fleet. Though not part of Operation Drumbeat, Peterson would subsequently go on three missions to the American East Coast. He says his experience was similar to that depicted in the 1981 German film Das Boot. One of the things we had to do was write a testament, and I was incredibly seasick the first day at sea. Oh, was I sick. In World War II, the German Navy built approximately 1,154 submarines. They could carry up to 22 torpedoes. The actual symphony of carnage uh, would begin on, on January 12th. The five U-boats in Operation Drumbeat were highly successful. In just three weeks, they sent 26 vessels, 162,000 gross registered tons of Allied shipping, and 252 Americans to a watery grave. It was a shooting gallery. It was very easy to sink ships here because they had no idea how to handle it. We could see the lights. Everything was brightly lit up, and that helped uh, those skippers that were here uh, at a time uh, to identify the targets. The Navy did nothing. They were sitting ducks. Not only were they sinking ships, they were also putting German spies ashore. Those eight saboteurs who landed secretly in Florida and on Long Island put ashore by U-boats. It wasn't until the summer of 42 that blackouts were ordered along the eastern seaboard. But by that time, U-123, commanded by Reinhard Hardigan, had already sunk nine ships. Captain Hardigan, of course, was the first drumbeater. He was known to be a tough commander but a very, very, very successful one. Like all U-boat commanders, Hardigan kept meticulous logs of the ships he sank. These are his Kriegstag books. On April 7th, uh, Captain Hardigan made an entry in his Kriegstag's book. Uh, we are marching again tight along the land from lighthouse to lighthouse that burn as if during peacetime. On April 8th, 1942, U-123 was patiently waiting for its next kill. Shortly thereafter, at about... 1215, uh, he spied one tanker proceeding northward, and it was the, the SS Oklahoma, a Texaco tanker. Hardigan's U-boat surfaced, fired a torpedo at the unarmed Oklahoma, but missed. 
An hour and a half later, he tried again. This time, he hit his target, instantly killing five sailors. It slammed into the starboard side uh, engine room of the Oklahoma, sending her to the bottom uh, in 40 feet of water. Navas wiper Frank Trubish was right behind the Oklahoma on another tanker, the S.O. Baton Rouge. She was hauling 89,000 barrels of heating oil from Texas to New Jersey. At that point, you're right off St. Simon's Island, Georgia. Yeah, yeah. Was your ship armed? We had uh, two two-by-fours. We stuck them together. And then on the breach, we'd take this piece of canvas. We wrapped it around it, make it look like a three-inch gun. That was stuck out over the stern. U-123 then um, set about the task of taking out the S.O. Baton Rouge. Around after midnight, I went down to, to my bunk, sleeping. It was hotter than hell. So I figured, well, I'll grab my life preserver, and I'll go lay up by the stack. Lay on the deck and uh, fell asleep. And I woke up. Uh, boom, she says. The torpedo hit right, hit right on, hitting the bunkers in the engine room. Did you know where you were at that no. point? No, I knew. No, I didn't know anything. And... Uh, must have thrown me up in the air. So here I am, the water coming down all over me and everything. There's nothing worse than to see a big ball of fire go up when a ship gets hit. 22 mariners were killed in the attacks. U-123 would sink 44 Allied ships during the war and become the sixth most successful U-boat in the Kriegsmarine. Winston Churchill said, whosoever controls the Atlantic will win the war. His statement couldn't have been more prophetic. Coming up, Learn how the Allies fought back against the U-boat menace. In the first six months of 1942, over 400 Allied ships were sunk by German U-boats along the American East Coast, killing nearly 5,000 seamen. But casualties among the U-boat crews were also staggering. Serving on a submarine was, of course, a very dangerous job. 80% of the people or thereabouts uh, did not come back. They died. After spending a total of 333 days at sea, Pete Peterson and U-518 made it back to port. The 518 came back to Norway since we couldn't land in, in France anymore. And the first day, believe it or not, we could barely walk because we hadn't walked for four months. And usually there's a band playing the song that the band is playing most of the time, the Stars and Stripes Forever. And we had our own words to the song. Now we are back home and we dive into the foaming beer because 518 got its ass on a pier. So when I came to the United States, I didn't know it was an American song. I had no idea. By May of 42, Admiral Ernest King realized we were losing the commerce war because of the U-boat menace. Though naval armed guards had been added to the merchant fleet in November of 41, the supply line to Britain was still in peril. Following Britain's lead, Admiral King had no choice but to institute the convoy system. The British had learned a valuable lesson in World War I that the best way to protect shipping was to run them in groups of ships, 40, 50, maybe 70 at a time, um, strategically arranged with the most valuable cargo in the middle. Convoys protected by destroyers, destroyer escorts, and corvettes could span up to nine miles. By the end of summer, the number of merchant marine losses had dropped significantly. But Admiral Karl Dönitz had another plan. The Wolfpack was a strategy that was devised by Dönitz prior to the war. And what he envisions to have a fleet of U-boats, 15 to 20 strong, when one located a convoy, the Wolfpack would assemble and attack at night 
on the surface and effectively take out the convoy. And some of the most heroic submarine captains were known to drive right into the middle of a convoy, surface, and start picking off their targets. But Radio Officer Bernard Flato soon found out that U-boats weren't the only menace. We were attacked by German planes who took off from southern France and they attacked the entire convoy. Flato and the SS Thomas Donaldson were on their maiden voyage en route to the Persian Gulf to deliver supplies for the Russians. I heard this roar of a Stuka dive bomber, and if you've never heard one, it's very frightening. It's, and I heard a loud explosion, and I thought we were hit. It wasn't us, it was the ship next to us. I was really scared. You have to marvel at the uncommon valor exhibited by these merchant mariners, especially in the Murmansk runs, the, the runs to the Soviet Union, uh, Archangel and Murmansk, which were just hellish affairs. And it was just a true gauntlet for them to run. In June 1941, Hitler invaded Russia and was inching toward European domination. It was crucial for the U.S. and Great Britain to keep Russia in the war. We helped those Russian people over there. They, were, they, wouldn't, they couldn't survive. In July of 1944, Bernard Flato found himself in a 25-ship convoy on what became known as the Murmansk Run, a 5,000-mile trip from the United States. You're now going into the what many people say is the second worst ocean in the world. Uh, the North Atlantic is, is a, a horrible place to be in any kind of a storm. How long can a person live in that water? I give them five minutes. The spray and inclement weather hit the guns, it hit the, the front of the ship. The ice at some time was five inches thick on the front of the ship. The gunners had to uh, use hammers to break the ice off the guns. The Battle of the Atlantic was perhaps the most crucial battle of the war. It was the longest, the largest, and the most costliest battle. Next, hear how three brave mariners were torpedoed by a disguised German raider and lived to tell the story. By the end of 1943, the pendulum had swung in favor of the Allies. German U-boats in the Atlantic had all but ceased to pose a significant threat to merchant ships. The air gap that existed in the mid-Atlantic was closed. Liberators and British Wellingtons were able to now strike U-boats uh, in the mid-Atlantic. The convoy system had finally been uh, finely honed and detailed. Of course, now they have radar. They have improved sonar. They have a much improved naval intelligence network where they, they actually are breaking the codes of German submarine messages that are being sent. In addition to that, the shipbuilding effort was able to crank out more ships than were being sunk by the U-boot Lava. It was really a combination of all these factors working together that was the downfall. We were well on our way to winning the war in the Atlantic, but despite progress with radar technology and the convoy system, Many merchant ships still had to brave the seas alone. From Chesapeake Bay onward, we never had any protection at all. We were on our own. We never was once in a convoy. We was always alone. We was traveling alone. On our ship, we had 10 Navy boys, and we had one 14-inch gun and two 50-caliber machine guns, and that's all uh, that we had. Third mate George Duffy and able seaman Ken Pride boarded a diesel freighter, the MV American Leader. The American Leader was a C-1 class vessel. It was the smallest of the four classes. It was a little over 400 feet long, 27-foot uh, draft, and could carry about 10,000 tons of cargo. We left New York on the 26th of April in 1942, 
and we had a full cargo of war supplies consigned to the Russians and the British. Barbed wire, army boots, steel ingots, steel plates, and nine twin-engine bombers lashed on deck with all of their spare parts in the hold. We read in the paper that the German Navy had two raiders operating in the Atlantic Ocean. Everybody knew they were out there, but nobody really told us what to look for or how to avoid them. Considered to be Grand Admiral Eric Raider's secret weapon, German raiders appeared to be neutral merchant ships, but were actually armed vessels. Ten of them were in operation during World War II. Their mission was to augment the destruction of Allied merchant ships as well, and they operated in the Indian Ocean, and they operated in uh, the Atlantic. These guys were pirates. They flew anybody's flag they felt like. Uh, one of them, she disguised herself as a Japanese ship. She flew a Japanese flag, and she approached ships, and they thought she was a Jap, and boom. It just looked like an ordinary merchant ship until it went into action. September 7th, 1942, the American leader and her crew of 58 left Cape Town, South Africa, bound for New York. Then three days out of Cape Town is where this raider hit us at about 10 o'clock at night. We were headed due west 270 degrees, and up out of the dock came a, another vessel, and bang, 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 it was the German raid, raider Mikkel. They expended about 150 uh, four-inch and 5.9-inch shells into the ship and then two torpedoes to, to hasten it along. And they hit a storage fuel tank, and when they hit that tank and set it afire, well, we was, that oil just run all over us. Fire in the sea and there's fire all on our decks. First thing I heard after we got hit was a abandoned ship. The American leader was on fire and sinking. Our lifeboats were gone. We had nothing but a few life rafts. and We weren't in a very enviable position. But I got off the ship and on a life raft and eventually uh, I had 23 people, 22 people myself on this life raft. I can see it right now. I can just see that ship going down right now. Be like sitting out in your yard and watching your house burn. The 47 survivors of the American leader were picked up by the Mickels crew. Duffy and Pride joined 500 other prisoners of the Germans whose ships had also been targeted and sent to the bottom. The American leader was the Mickels' 11th victim. For the next three months, the Mickel continued to lure unsuspecting merchant ships. On November 29, 1942, third mate Stanley Wilner and the crew of the MS Sawakla were next. They just delivered a cargo and war supplies to the Russian and British in the Persian Gulf. Tell me about coming back out of, out of India, headed home. We were about uh, 400 miles off of Madagascar. It was real cloudy and dark that night. It was overcast. I was on watch about, it was about 9.30 at night, and I noticed something in the distance. It looked like an object. Couldn't see what it was. So I buzzed the captain's cabin. And uh, I heard his door slam, and the next thing I knew, I was in the water, hanging on to a piece of wreckage. I don't know how I got in the water. They said that our ship sunk in 10 or 15 minutes. Turns out that the ship that, that sinks you is a German raider. Right, called the Mickel. And they said they put two or three torpedoes in us, and the seven-inch, six-inch guns, whatever they had, they, they shelled us until it went down. No warning given whatsoever? None. No signal stop? Nothing. The crew told me that they told them that they spotted us in the afternoon and tailed us and then doubled in front of us and waited for us and then let us have it. Stanley Wilner and his best friend, second mate Dennis Rowland, were among the 19 survivors. 
Well, the Germans kept us on there for three months, gave us wonderful medical treatment. I wouldn't be here. And you had been pretty badly wounded. I had a big hunk out of my leg. I have a testicle shot away and everything else. Your ship, for all intents and purposes, disappears without a trace. Disappeared without a trace. No one heard from the crew of the Sawakla until VJ Day 1945. Find out how these brave young Americans ended up as prisoners of the Japanese. That's next on War Stories. Disguised as friendly or neutral vessels, the 10 German raiders were highly effective in World War II. They sank or captured 138 Allied merchant ships, totaling a million gross registered tons. I think that if we on the ships knew how bad it was, we might have had something to say about whether we went to sea or not. We didn't know just how, how desperate the situation was out there. The Mikkel alone picked off 19 ships, but on October 17, 1943, the Mikkel finally met her demise when she was torpedoed and sunk by an American submarine, the USS Tarpon. In addition to the perils of the sea or an act of God that a given merchant ship might have to contend with during uh, its transiting of, a, of an ocean, during World War II, the United States Merchant Marine and its allies had to contend with German dive bombers, surface raiders, uh, auxiliary raiders, U-boats uh, and mines. One thing none of these mariners ever imagined was becoming Japanese prisoners of war. But in March of 43, after three months as German prisoners of war, Stanley Wilner and his friend Dennis Rowley Rowland were handed over to the Japanese in occupied Singapore. Well, they put us off in Changi first, and on the way in from Changi, from the pier to Changi, we passed in Raffles Square in Singapore, it's like Times Square in New York, and there was a big scaffold there, and they had about six or eight naked women had decomposed there. Stanley, the treatment you get by the Japanese is entirely different than the Germans gave you. They just beat you unmercifully for nothing. Wilner and Roland had been in Changi jail for almost a year when they were transferred. Tell me about building the bridge over the River Kwai. Well, the Japanese give you the same treatment you'd give a cockroach that walks on the floor in your house step on you. And that wasn't the worst of it. After months of back-breaking slave labor building what came to be known as the Death Railway, Stanley Wilner witnessed a most horrifying scene. This little one-arm, one-leg Englishman used to heat the water in a tank for the Japanese officer. And we were coming in from work one night. There was all kind of commotion and screaming and hollering going on. We didn't know something was up. So we got in there, man, they marched us right up in there, and we see the water under the drum, you know, it's boiling water. They picked this little Englishman up and threw him in. They told us he had made the water too hot for the Jap officer's bath. And boy, I screamed never went away. The Death Railway would ultimately claim the lives of over 100,000 slave laborers. How much did you weigh? 75 pounds, 74 pounds, something like that, in the low 70s. George Duffy and Ken Pride also became Japanese prisoners of war. And then they transferred us to a supply ship, took us to Java, and uh, turned us over to the Japanese. They lined us up and they just gave us a casual inspection, and then he told us to go on and get whatever belongings we had, and uh, that was it. That's how we became Japanese prisoners. Duffy made a calendar and kept a POW journal. These are some of his original entries. 
Duffy was in Java until June of 44 when he was transferred to another camp in Sumatra, Indonesia. We found out we were going to build a railway. They had a dirt road and they widened the dirt road with additional embankment upon which we laid the railway tracks. And this was not a, a long railway, about 138 miles. Ken had gone in the middle of 1944 when I left to go to Sumatra. He had already been sent to Japan. Ken Pride was being transferred to Japan on a Japanese hell ship when it was torpedoed by an American submarine right off the coast of Nagasaki. I was sleeping on the hatch, raised up, just sit up like that, and I seen this torpedo coming, you know, this wake of this torpedo, and it come right around the bow of the ship that just hit. And it blew me up in the air, and, you know, I just tumbled and tumbled. I don't know how many times I tumbled, but I popped up out of that sea, and the ship was gone. Just that, it was that fast. And there was dead people everywhere. Just everywhere. All told, uh, all nationalities, there was... 777 of us there, and 212 of us came off of that ship alive. But unfortunately, Pride was picked up by the Japanese and sent to work as a slave laborer under deplorable conditions in a coal mine. They worked on us mentally and physically. On our holidays, they'd set up a big banquet. Everything would be there, like big roast turkey, big ham, all the trimmings, just like we have it here at home. And they would march us in there and sit us down, and they'd take pictures of us, and then they'd stand us up and march us out. They were released in 1945, shortly after Japan surrendered. It's hard to imagine they'd ever want to go back to their hell, but two of them did. In 1976, Dennis Rowland and Stanley Wilner went back to the bridge over the River Kwai. It was a march of forgiveness, a reunion of Japanese officers and their former POWs. Do you feel like going over that bridge? I would walk across it with them. Now, Roly did. Roly brought a flag. Congressman Biaki from New York gave him a flag over the White House, and I got one from Senator Byrd. But I wouldn't walk across the bridge with them. No, sir, I didn't forgive them. German U-boat number 505 falls into American hands. We'll take you aboard. That's next on War Stories. By June of 44, the Allies were well on their way to winning the war. But the U.S. Navy still hoped to achieve something that hadn't been done since 1815, the capture of an enemy ship on the high seas. The plan was put into action, if at all possible, on the next encounter with the German submarine, try to capture it. Sink it if you have to, but if possible, get aboard the submarine and bring it home. For about two or three months, then on they trained boarding parties. The USS Guadalcanal Task Group found its target, German U-boat 505 was lurking in the waters off Casablanca, Morocco. And it was the uh, morning of June 4th, 1944, about 11 a.m. The USS Chatelaine, which is a destroyer escort operating with the task group, got a solid contact on the U-505 about 100 feet down and immediately set upon a uh, depth charge attack. We are badly damaged underwater, had the opportunity to come to the surface, abandon the ship, and fully expect, expected that the submarine was going to sink. A boarding party jumped in their whaleboats uh, with their attack plan already in place with all the tools they needed and all the supplies they needed 
and in about 11 minutes we were able to get aboard U-505 and, and uh, basically gain control over the boat. It was an amazing story. These men are the cream of the German Navy. They just can't believe that their ship has been captured. The Americans quickly raised the stars and stripes. After the U-505 was captured, it was towed to Bermuda. It was immediately put into dry dock and, and investigated by all kinds of naval intelligence personnel. The American Navy probably expected to see the greatness of German engineering and the incredible build quality and so on. But when they got to actually inspect the submarines up close, and especially U-505 when it was captured, they realized that the quality wasn't what they expected. U-Boat 505's final resting place is here, the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. The memorial really is a dedication to 55,000 American sailors who lost their lives in two world wars, primarily due to the submarines. Former German submariner Pete Peterson took war stories on a special tour. So this is one of the holes that were caused by the, uh, the enemy fire. We have entered through the side here into the electric motor room. In back of the electric motor room is the rear torpedo room, which was also used for quarters for the crew to sleep. Certain, uh, uh, a certain part of the crew, mostly uh, engineers, slept in that. In fact, my bunk was the second to the left, and I was sleeping like, uh, like sleeping on a ton of TNT. But uh, no problem. <laughs> you get used to that sort of thing. But uh, one interesting thing is the term hot bunking. And what it means is that actually two people slept in one bunk. Not at the same time, of course. Back here, kind of an interesting little item, and that one of, was one of the toilets. There were two toilets aboard a sub like this, and uh, to go to the toilet on a sub is an experience in itself, and I don't want to go into details, but one of the toilets was right here. And it's... <laughs> It was called a washroom. Believe me, there was no washing in there. Well, we are in the kitchen now. A full-time cook who had nothing else to do but uh, cook uh, worked here. And can you imagine in this small space cooking for 55 people? By the spring of 45, German U-boats were no longer a threat to the Allies. Despite his failure, Admiral Karl Dönitz's star continued to rise in the Third Reich. On April 30th, 1945, Hitler committed suicide, and the next day, May 1st, Dönitz assumed command of the Third Reich, and he was the only other person to have the title of Führer. He um, surrendered the German forces on, on the 7th of May, 1945. Dönitz was eventually tried for war crimes and being found guilty on four counts he was sentenced to 10 years in prison at uh, Spandau Prison. He survived until December 24th, 1980. At the end of the war, our troops came home to celebrations and the benefits of veteran status. But not the merchant mariners who, like the WASPs and the Army Transport Service, weren't considered part of the military. No, no. There were no parades, there were no benefits. Some merchant mariners had become famous, among them Cliff Robertson, James Garner, Carol O'Connor, yet none of them were recognized as veterans. I took my wife, we were going to go down to a dance down in Port Jefferson. I walked up to the door, they wouldn't let us in. There was a merchant marine. Do you believe it? Stan, when you, when you got back home, it turns out that our government 
wasn't willing to qualify you as veterans. Tell me what that meant to you. Well, I felt bad because uh, the British, you know, they, they were veterans and the Australians were veterans and even the Japanese considered us, you know, a, pre, a POW. When President Roosevelt signed the GI Bill, he said, I trust Congress will soon provide similar opportunities to members of the Merchant Marine who've risked their lives time and again during war for the welfare of the country. But FDR died before it could be implemented. With FDR's death, so went the hopes of American merchant mariners to receive uh, veteran status. Forty years later, a wrong was righted. In 1988, President Ronald Reagan finally gave World War II mariners their due. And it only happened because of lobbying on the, the part of individuals like myself and other men throughout the United States, hundreds and thousands of us, that we were able to persuade the, uh, the Congress and the Senate to uh, grant uh, veteran status to us. Were you bitter about that? I love my country. I can't hate my country. It didn't affect me in any way other than uh, the mere fact that we're not considered to be a veteran. How could you say I'm not a veteran when I'm a veteran? I was there. You've got to, once again, um, honor their persistence just as they had in World War II. They persisted and they prevailed. I'm Oliver North, and you're watching War Stories on the Fox News Channel. Stay with us. In World War II, the U.S. Merchant Marine played a crucial role in every theater of war. Without them, without this crucial bridge of ships delivering weapons, troops, food, ammo, and fuel, from the home front to the battle lines, there would have been no Allied victory. When World War II ended in 1945, nearly 80,000 Allied merchant mariners and 5,000 ships lay at the bottom of the sea. President Franklin Roosevelt said, as time goes on, there'll be greater public understanding of our merchant fleet's record. Well, time has gone on, and the merchant marine has as well. The vast bulk of weapons, supplies, and equipment used to fight Operation Iraqi Freedom were delivered by merchant mariners. For those who served and continue to serve in the U.S. Merchant Marine, theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North. Good night. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.